James chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to all who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, now that we have read your word, Lord, we are asking that you would speak to us through it. Lord, we believe that your word is a powerful, powerful thing. It is your word. And we believe that through your word, you teach us and instruct us, you challenge us, and you change us. We're mindful of the words of the psalmist, David, in Psalm 19.7, who speaks of your word and he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Lord, this morning, there are souls here that need reviving. There are people here who need wisdom. And God, we are so thankful that we have your holy word. And so we pray now, Lord, that you would use your word to these ends in our midst, that you would revive our souls, that you would guide us into the truth and help us to live life wisely. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So we are on week three of three talking about the subject of the testing of our faith. Um, We have an outline we'll put up here, but we have an outline of kind of the entire book. And the first section is this section, the testing of our faith. And we've spent three weeks now, two weeks, and this will be the third, talking about the testing of our faith, which comes up in chapter one, verses one through 18. So you see the way we're kind of breaking down the whole book of James here. So two weeks ago, we did Trials Are the Test, and we handled that that first section there. And then last week, we talked about perspective shift and wisdom. And this week, we're talking about temptation, you see, the trial within. That's the title of the sermon this morning, Temptation, the Trial Within. And we're going to be covering the last section 
of this first main section, talking about the testing of our faith. What we learned in the first two weeks is that our faith, your faith in Jesus, is being tested when you go through trials. So our faith is tested through trials. That was the last two weeks. This morning, we're going to see that our faith is tested through temptations, as you and I experience temptation. Now, these two topics, that of trials and that of temptations, are very, very closely related. In fact, the Greek word that is translated in verse 13, tempted, in the verses to follow, the Greek word translated tempted there is the exact same Greek word that is translated trials in verse 12 and also back in verse 2 where James said we should count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. So the word tempted and the word trials is the same word. Now the reason why the translators use tempted starting in verse 13 through 15 is because of the context. The context in our section this morning that we're looking at makes it clear that the sort of testing that James now has in mind is the sort of testing that is temptation, where we're being tempted to do evil, being tempted to sin against the Lord. Temptation is what you would call the trial within. This is where I'm getting our sermon title this morning. The trial within, you can call that temptation. And we all know what it is to face temptation. Whether it's the temptation to eat that sweet late at night before you go to bed, and you really know you shouldn't have that bowl of ice cream, right? Or, or for me, one of the most tempting sweets late at night is cereal. I don't know why a bowl of cereal, I know it's a breakfast food, but that always sounds good to me late at night. And you're sitting there and you know you really shouldn't eat that sweet, but there's that battle. There's that fight. There's that internal struggle. Maybe I should give in to this and do this. Or the temptation to do something rather immoral. We all know that battle. Maybe it's to click on that website or on that social media profile that you have no business clicking on. And there's that temptation. There's that internal struggle. It's a battle between what you want to do in the moment and what you know you ought to do. That's temptation. It's that internal struggle, and no one is immune from it. We can all relate to the young man's prayer, lead me not into temptation, I can find the way myself. Unfortunately, it's not only that we all battle temptation, though we do, it's that all of us give in to temptation from time to time. And when we we do, when we yield to that temptation to do the wrong thing, One of the most common responses is to blame shift. You give in to temptation and you sin, and we often blame shift. It seems to me that every single time I ask one of my boys, did you hit your brother? Their response is, yes, but he. (laughs) Yes, but he. There's the immediate blame shift. Rather than just saying, yes, I hit him. It was wrong. It's, Yes, but dad, actually, it wasn't my fault. I'm not, I'm, I'm the victim here. The only reason I hit him is because of what he first did to me. And this is so normal of a response for us humans to our sin. There's nothing new with this. Now, 
What's crazy is that sometimes people actually try to pass the blame even further than another person. And people sometimes actually want to lay the blame for their sin and their temptation at the feet of, listen, God, God himself. Evidently, this is what some Christians in the churches that James is writing to were doing. Look at verse 13. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Clearly, there were people who were saying when they were tempted, I am being tempted by God. God is is tempting me right now with evil. He's the one who is setting me up to sin here. Now, this pushing temptation off or blaming temptation on God is nothing new. In fact, think of the very first temptation to sin in the Garden of Eden. What does Adam do there? He blame shifts, right? Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, the fruit that they were not supposed to eat of, And God comes to confront Adam, just like a father comes to confront his children. Did you hit your brother? Well, God comes to Adam in the garden. Did you eat of the fruit? What does Adam do? He blame shifts. He says, it was the woman. It was the woman. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just that he wants to blame Eve for the sin. He takes it a step further and he says, it's the woman that you gave to me. In other words, Lord, if you hadn't put her in my life, I would have never sinned. You're the one that's ultimately responsible for this temptation and this sin that I have given into. And people still blame God for their sins today. People will say things like this, if God didn't want me to do this, then God wouldn't have made me this way. Or another thing that is often said is, If God didn't want me to think this way or God didn't want me to feel like this, then God would have never allowed me to go through that. God would have never let that happen to me. But since he did, that's why I am doing what I'm now doing. So James here in verse 13 wants to set the record straight. Remember, he's trying to instill wisdom in this book. And what he says emphatically in verse 13 is that God is not behind your temptations to sin. God is not sitting there with a little test going on in your life and saying, I want to dangle evil things in front of my children and see if I can get them to bite, see if I can get them to sin, see if I can get them to transgress my command. That is not what God is about. God is holy. God is pure. God is altogether righteous and good. God has no associations with evil. The only thing that God does with evil is judge it and destroy it. Habakkuk 1.13 reminds us of the holiness and the purity of God. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. It's like God, God just, he can't even look at it because he is so pure and holy. He has no dealings with sin and with evil. So the question then becomes, where does temptation come from? It's not coming from God. Where does temptation come from? And church, listen, James is going to point us to a sobering truth this morning. He's going to point us to, listen, the problem within. The problem within. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own 
desire. Verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What James is doing for us this morning is he is pulling back the curtain and giving us a look inside the human heart and mind during the process of temptation. And he locates the source of temptation as a problem within. A problem within. Now, my boys and I have gotten really into fishing over the last two years. We've taken a liking to it. And we went to the lake last Monday, and we went fishing, and Judah caught this really beautiful trout. It was probably a... You know how those stories go. He caught this amazing, it was more like that big of a trout, but it was a beautiful trout. And he catches this, this fish and he was using power bait. And when we got out and we're getting ready to leave the lake, the camp host comes up to us in his truck and he drives up and he goes, that's a beautiful fish. And he says, uh, nobody's been catching trout like that for months here. And not surprisingly, the question that he had for me was this. What bait was he using when he caught the trout? The bait, or lure to use James's word in chapter 14, is what draws the fish out. It's that bait dangling there in the water, refracting the sunlight, moving a certain way that draws the fish out. It's the lure that pulls the fish out and tempts it to come and bite down on the hook. Notice with me what lures and entices, that word entices means seduces. Notice what lures and entices us. Notice what it is that is drawing us out and tempting us to do evil. Do you see it in the verse? The answer is our own desires. This is sobering. For some of us, this is shocking. Because we would think that the problem is solely about something that is being dangled out in front of us. But what James is teaching us is so profound. When it comes to temptation to sin, ultimately our problem lies within. It's my own desires that make evil tempting. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say when they're talking about temptation, the devil made me do it. Right? The devil made me do it. That is such a cop-out. <laughs> it really is. Now, sure, the devil may have tempted you to do it. We do know from Scripture that Satan is a tempter. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, we read this, And Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Or in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul writes, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Satan is a tempter. But family, listen. Ultimately, you did it because you wanted to. Period. You did it because you wanted to. Unless you had the desire, you wouldn't have done it no matter what the devil dangled in front of you. Let me try to illustrate this for you. It's, it's sort of like the advertising industry. Okay, no matter how sexy the advertising campaign is for a brand new minivan, it's only going to appeal to people who are into minivans. 
Trust me, I have tried for years to demonstrate to my wife, to lure and entice my wife into what I think is the glory of the minivan for families that have young children. Honey, the doors just automatically slide open. Your kids just jump in and jump out. This is so simple. It's so easy. And let me tell you something. All of my efforts, all of my energies, every time I bring up online pictures of the latest and greatest minivans and show her tutorial videos and pictures, guess what? Zero interest, complete shutdown. She has no desire for a minivan. Now, I have other friends who are in the same situation in life as I am, and that wasn't the case for them. They just showed the minivan to their wife. Their wife was into minivans, was open to minivans, and she took the bait and bought the minivan. And they are joyfully driving these great minivans even now. Or go back to the fishing example. Imagine if you were fishing, so you go to Lake Kachuma, you take your fishing pole, and you tie a big leather boot to the end of the hook, and you just throw it in the lake. You just sit there and you're like, I know I'm in the right spot. I'm near this dock. I know I'm going to catch something. And you've just got a leather boot sitting there hanging off your fishing pole. I don't care how many hours you sit there. I don't care how many days on end you sit there. You will never catch a trout. You might catch a catfish. Those things are so ugly. I feel like they'd eat anything. But you'll never catch a trout. Why? Because they don't desire that. There's, there's no appeal. That's not what they're interested in eating. Listen, the exterior temptation, okay, the thing in front of you is only effective when there is internal desire. The external temptation is only effective when there is internal desire. This is how temptation works. Now, the Greek word for desire here in verse 14 is a word that can refer to positive or negative desires. And we see it used both ways in the New Testament. So the desires could be positive or negative. And sometimes the temptation that is in front of us appeals to our good or natural desires. This was the devil's approach with Jesus, right? Think about the first temptation with Jesus. The devil there is tempting Jesus to turn a stone into bread. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. He is literally starving to death. And the devil now comes to Jesus and he's trying to play into Jesus' natural desire to eat to get Jesus to take matters into his own hands rather than relying on his father to provide for him. In other words, he's trying to get Jesus to use his deity, his own power to transform a rock into bread which, here's the problem with that, that would completely disqualify Jesus from being your substitute or mine. Because you and I can't do that when we're in a moment of temptation. We don't have supernatural power as an out in those moments. What do we do in our moments of temptation? We have to rely on God to see us through. And Satan is now trying to leverage a natural desire in Jesus, the desire to feed himself. He's trying to leverage that to get Jesus, to lure Jesus, I should say, into a sinful activity. So think of the natural, good, or even godly desire to provide for your family. The scriptures teach us that we should provide for our families. This is a good desire. 
But that desire can lure us into temptation to cheat or to steal when we don't have enough. But more often than that, more often than leveraging good or normal natural desires in us, what happens is that our own deviant desires and impulses are ammunition enough to lead us into temptation to sin. The bottom line is when it comes to temptation to sin, ultimately our problem lies within, at the level of our own desires. So family, listen, your greatest enemy is not the devil. Your greatest enemy is not other people. Your greatest enemy is yourself. And the sooner you can come to grips with that sobering reality, the more likely you are to actually have success with temptation. Because you're going to realize, as we're going to talk about in this message, that you need help from without. Help from the outside. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 18 through 21. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anybody relate to this? You ever been here? He says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Or over in Galatians 5.17, Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Paul is helping us to see there really what James is talking about. That there is an internal conflict that rages at the level of your desires. So what we are in need of is some way to control and guide our desires in godly ways. Because without that, our desires present a very serious and fatal problem. This is what verse 15 teaches. Notice again in verse 15 he says, Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. This verse is showing us the way that desire progresses and it is not good. He says desire conceives, so now he's using a reproductive metaphor. He's saying, look, at desire gets pregnant and then has a baby and the baby is named sin. That child will have a complex, don't you think? So desire gets pregnant and has a baby named sin. Now, did you know that when you conceive, when you get pregnant, the inevitable result, the inevitable progression is going to be that you have a baby. That's the way it works. And that is James's point here. Once desire has conceived, sin is the inevitable progression. It is too late at that point. When desire conceives, what James is referring to here is the moment that the decision has been made in your heart. The sinful thought at that moment or action is inevitable. He's saying, look, at that moment, you've taken the bait. At that moment, you've made the decision. At that moment, you've hatched the plan. And sin is the inevitable result. But it doesn't stop there. It gets worse. Because as you know, once a child is born... 
The inevitable, inevitable progression from there is they grow up and eat you out of house and home. And that's exactly what he's saying here. That sin, which was born, once it is full grown, once it grows up, it brings forth death. Like a parasite, eventually it eats its host. It destroys you. And it brings forth death in your life. Sin brings forth death physically. Sin brings forth death spiritually because it cuts us off from God, the very source of life. And sin brings forth death eternally. This is what Romans 6.23 says. For the wages of sin is death. But I love Romans 6.23 because after that terrible statement, there's this beautiful word of hope here. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is good news amidst all of this bad news related to the problem within. And that's the good news that we need to talk about now. Next in our text, notice with me, not only is there a problem within, but now we see that there is the hope from above. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What is James saying? He's saying, far from being the author of temptation and evil in your life, God is the giver of all that is good in your life. James is emphatic here. He says to the church, do not be deceived, don't get it twisted. God is not bringing temptation in your life. God is only always bringing good in your life. Rather than tempting us to do evil, we see that God is the one who provides us a way of escape. Consider 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Listen, God is not your tempter. God is your savior. And because of that, whenever temptation comes knocking, you need to know this, there is always another door. There is always another door. God is making sure of it. He is always making another door. Notice that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. All that is good, all that is perfect comes down from heaven. And who does James say, say the source of all these good things is? Well, as I mentioned, it's God. But he uses the descriptor, the father of lights here, which was a Jewish way of referring to the God of creation, God who created all of the heavenly bodies, God who created all of the lights in the sky, the sun and the moon and the stars. And James is saying, although those things are subject to change and to move and as planets move and as the earth rotates, there's shadows and variation from our appearance and change. He's saying, although that's true of the heavenly bodies, that is not true of God. He is constantly, only, ever good. What a great thought this morning. That God is constantly only ever good. He does no evil. 
He is unflinching in his goodness toward his children. No matter what trials you're going through, no matter how intense the temptations have become, your Father in heaven only gives good gifts to his kids. So we can call on him, we can turn to him in faith, trusting him for the grace and the power and the provision to see you through. Now of all of God's good gifts, verse 18 reminds us that the greatest gift he gives is the gift of salvation. It says that he brought us forth. This is a reference, church, to being born again. The New International Version captures this well. Listen to how they translate this. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Now, remember with me that James is the brother of Jesus. So we can be pretty confident that we know where James got this idea of being born again from. God giving us this new birth. Remember Jesus' conversation in John 3 with Nicodemus, where he looks at this religious leader and he says that we must be born again. And now James is pointing out that God causes us to be born again. Don't miss this contrast. This is so significant. Left to ourselves... Our desires give birth to sin, which leads to death. But coming down from above, the grace of God gives us the new birth, leading to everlasting life. Isn't this amazing? I mean, isn't this incredible? The grace of God, how good God is to us. Now, some this morning might not feel worthy of God's love and God's grace. And that's okay, because you're not. And neither am I. None of us are worthy. But that's exactly the point. That's why I'm so thankful that verse 18 shows us that it's not about our own worthiness. It says, of his own will he brought us forth. In other words, listen, family, he didn't do this. He didn't save you because of what you've done or what you failed to do. It was his choice based in his unconditional love. As Lauren Daigle sings in her song, Love Like This, she says, what have I done to deserve love like this? I cannot earn, but you so freely give. What have I done to deserve love like this? Sounds like a woman who's astounded by the grace of God. That it's unconditional. She doesn't earn it, but he so freely gives it to his children. You've got to rest this morning in God's love for you. You are the object of his affection if you belong to Jesus. And he says that God did this, that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures at the end of verse 18. In other words, these Christians that James is writing to 2,000 years ago were the initial harvest of believers that has continued up through today and includes even us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. It's amazing. Okay, let's recap and close. Our great problem is within. Our desires are what get us into trouble. And because the problem is within, we are hopeless. That is, of course, unless there is help available from without. And as we've seen this morning, as James so powerfully reminds us, there is. The Father of lights 
rains down all that is good and perfect on us. And the ultimate good and perfect gift is none other than his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who he sent down from heaven as our appointed savior. And through faith in him, guess what? We are born again and we become children of God. And this is where the hope comes from in battling temptation. We have hope in two ways. And these are going to be our concluding thoughts. Our hope in battling temptation comes in two ways. Number one comes from this, that in Christ we have been delivered from the penalty of our sin. In Christ we have been delivered from the penalty of our sin. By faith in Jesus we are united to his perfect life so that we share in his righteousness. What this means then is that his sinlessness His ability to say no to every single temptation he ever faced becomes our sinless state. We read this earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, speaking of God, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This means that in Christ, the penalty of our sins has been removed. As far as our position before God, we stand sinless, sinless, as ones who have perfectly resisted every temptation in our lives. It's amazing. The second reason we have hope in our battles with temptation is not just because we've been forgiven of our failures with it, but listen, in Christ, we are being delivered from the power of our sin. That God is not just saying, I forgive you from your sin, but God is actually really in our life experience delivering us from the power of sin. If you're a Christian here this morning, you don't love living in sin. You hate the the impact that it has, the destruction it brings to your relationships, the nastiness that it brings in your own heart and in your own soul. And guess what? God doesn't like it either. And so God is now in Christ giving us the power to be delivered from our sins. How is that so? Well, after Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, God the Holy Spirit came to take residence in the hearts of all of Jesus' followers. And the Holy Spirit is right now, if you're a Christian, actually empowering you to resist temptation in your life. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So you have to understand this. The Christian approach to battling temptation is not, let's just muster up a bunch of strength and self-restraint. No, we don't have that kind of power. Oscar Wilde famously said, I can resist everything except temptation. (laughs) And that speaks of the human condition. We, we give in. We go after the bait. It's not just, hey, get stronger. Be better. Be more disciplined. That is not the good news of the gospel. The Christian approach to battling temptation is to rely on a strength that is outside of ourselves. The strength of God himself. Now, how do we do that? Number one, we rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Knowing what I was just talking about, that in Christ, our sins are all forgiven. Knowing that is what motivates us to keep on doing battle against temptation day after day. And secondly, 
We rely on God's strength by walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Okay, Daniel, that's Christianese. What does that look like in actual practice? I'm glad you asked. It looks like this, feeding the Spirit and starving the flesh. Engaging with God in His Word, in prayer, in fellowship, in worship. Feeding your spirit and starving your flesh. Go back one last time to Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus was so in tune with God. Jesus was so led by the Spirit. He was so consumed with the Word, immersed with the Word, that when Satan came to Jesus and he was dangling these temptations in front of our Lord, what did Jesus say? He said, I think Justin said this earlier in his prayer, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the goal then, for those of us that are in Christ, in battling temptation is this, to be so stuffed with the grace and the glory and the goodness of God that every time Satan comes to you and temptation presents itself, you can in the spirit of Christ look that temptation dead in the face and say, I'm not hungry. I'm not hungry. I am so satisfied in him. Let's pray together. Father, what a word fitly spoken for myself and I'm sure for many others this morning. Because we know that in our flesh, in our earthiness, in our creatureliness, we don't have the resources to rightly guide our desires into godliness. That left, in, in, left to ourselves in, with only our own strength, we know that we are constantly being lured and enticed to go after the wrong things, to be deceived and to live in sin. And we know that sin is destructive and it destroys everything we love, everything that is good, everything that is beautiful is being destroyed because of sin. And so, Lord, we're so thankful for this morning for this reminder in your word that for those of us who have turned to Christ, we can have forgiveness for our sins. And not only that, but your spirit actually takes up residence in our lives and gives us the power to find another door. Gives us the power to live a different way. Gives us the power to live in the spirit and not in the flesh. To actually bring about good and joy and flourishing in the world rather than sin and death and destruction. And so Lord, we pray now that if there are any that have joined us this morning and they're not a Christian yet, God, please give them the faith today to realize I can't do this on my own. I'm going to make a mess of my life on my own. I probably already have in a lot of ways. But there is hope from above that God, you have sent Jesus for that express purpose to deal with our sins. And by turning to him in faith, we can also now receive your spirit to empower us to live a different way. Give them the faith to turn to Christ today. And for those of us who already have, renew our affections for you and renew our abilities, our strength to depend on you because we can't do it on our own. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's worship.